Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. I've been curious for a while about this question. Is the process of creating art more about becoming a mirror for the creator or for the observer? Thankfully, fine art photographer Brooke Shaden has explored this question for the better portion of her life and has found that the answer is yes to both. Both the creator and observer can find self-discovery and solidarity within a masterpiece. And this insight is one of the many reasons why I'm honored that Brooke is a guest on this podcast today. One of my favorite things about Brooke is that she describes herself as an intensely anxious, powerful, little creative soul. After studying film for years in college, she realized her love of storytelling was universal and started writing as well as pouring into international travel. As a self-portrait artist, Brooke has spent years photographing herself and becoming the characters of dreams inspired by a childhood of intense imagination and fear. Brooke's love of motivational speaking and education led her to bring a convention called Promoting Passion to Life, which is where I first met Brooke and became a forever fan of her work. The convention is a series of hands-on workshops, lectures, and creative panel discussions dedicated to helping artists make a difference with their passion. And she's also responsible for starting The Light Space, a photography school for survivors of human trafficking in India and Thailand. I am Brandon Harvey, and this is Sounds Good. This is the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. I'm so inspired by Brooke's work. I'm so excited about this conversation, so let's just jump straight into it. Maybe we should start off by just talking about the last time we saw each other. We were in the mountains in North Carolina, and you invited me out for a uh, a conference you were putting on, and it was incredible. It was so much fun. It was right in the middle of a hurricane, too. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that was wild. I was driving up the... Yes, you were coming up the mountain. Yeah, I was coming up the mountain, and it was the foggiest thing in the world, and I... Like I had lost service a long time ago and I was just like, okay, how do I find this? Like, what is it? It's like a retreat center or like a man. And then I eventually made it up there, got to meet you. And then that's also that conference you put on was also where I met a few other former podcast guests, including Nirami and Mira. And you just got a good collection of cool people. I like to think so. But every time I email someone to come to my convention, it's like this moment of, oh my gosh, who am I to be doing this? They're never going to respond to my email. And then and then it always works out eventually. Yeah. Something I love and admire about you is that you put your heart and soul into your work. I think that you're naturally attracted to other people who put their heart and soul into their work. And I, I think that that just like brings you together with the right people. I don't know if that makes sense. No, but yeah, it does. I mean, that's what I hope. Just a genuine connection. Yeah. And you know, you remain one of my favorite people to ever come to my convention because I will never forget when you arrived at the at the center and it was like, 
midnight and raining and foggy and you had just driven like hours to get there and you popped out of the car and you were like what can I do for you? And I was like, excuse me? What, like, what can I do for you? What are you talking about? And and that's the spirit that I love in people that I want to at, at best try to emulate and, and be like that. So thank you for inspiring me for all these years. Well, thank you. I was just excited to see humans. So. <laughs> <laughs> I was excited I made it alive. Yeah. Um, you're able to have a convention because you are a very established and talented photographer and your work of all my friends who are photographers is maybe the most unique. I hope that everybody listening to this gets to like go on Instagram, check out your work because it's so unique and beautiful and unlike anything that I'll ever do. Uh, and maybe that draws me to it even more. Um, but I, I want to kind of bring it back and, how did you get started as a photographer? When did you get started as a photographer? Well, I got started as a photographer about um, nine years ago. I was graduating from college and I went to college for filmmaking and English. Um, and I I was sort of in this weird in-between state of like, okay, I just spent three and a half years getting a degree in film, which is like already a questionable thing to do. <laughs> and then I realized that I didn't actually like it very much. And I was about to move to LA and just like, you know, spend my life doing this. And I had this extreme social anxiety, like to the point where I didn't want to leave my apartment. I didn't want to talk to people. And it dawned on me that if I wanted to be a filmmaker, I had to work with other people like a lot. And I just, Wait, where do you think that that social anxiety was coming from? I've always had it. And I don't know why. I mean, and you feel like you still have it. Oh yeah, totally. And, and I think huh. that for a little while it got worse and then it got a little better. It sort of ebbs and flows, but it's something that now at this point in my life I can use as inspiration. Whereas then it was just crippling and I didn't know what to do with it. So I became a photographer because I could work totally by myself. And you very uniquely are able to work totally by yourself because a lot of your, at least a lot of the work that I'm really drawn to of yours is self-portraiture. It's these really intricate self-portraits. Yeah, which was totally born from that place of I don't want to talk to anybody. So what can I do all by myself? So I was just <laughs> in my apartment, you know, wow. like I wouldn't leave my apartment. I wouldn't ask for help. It was just me and a camera and a tripod and whatever I could find. And the, and the result of that was that I would, you know, be in like LA dumpsters, which is probably the worst place to be. And just like gathering props and seeing what I could what I could do that would be a little bit weird and creepy but at, at the end of the day really satisfy my soul it's like you took what could have been a weakness and, and you you transitioned it over into being a strength and of course you've you've gotten to like process and work through that social anxiety to some degree over you know this course of time but I love that even in the midst of that, even in the midst of maybe it being the most difficult, you still made something from it. Yeah. And that's pretty much my my main inspiration in all of life, in every single thing that I do. I, I love analyzing and asking myself, where are my weaknesses today? And knowing that that'll be different from tomorrow because I'm willing to confront them. Oh, that's so fascinating. Okay. Let's break that down a little bit more. Like how where else kind of on a practical level are you are you kind of getting to do that in your work specifically? Right now, um, I'm. this is so unrelated to what I've ever done, but right now I'm writing a novel. And that has been really? one of the most... That's yeah, cool. it's amazing. But it's so confronting because, I mean, I think everyone listening, everyone in the world knows that 
they have insecurities and you might be really in tune with them or you might not be. And I happen to be very in tune with my insecurities. So when I went into writing, it was this confrontation of, well, you're not smart and you're not logical. And how are you ever going to put together a book? And that's been the main thing that I'm working through is finding a balance between being okay with where I'm at right now and also wanting to push myself to be better. That's so interesting. And I love that that's coming from a place of, okay, I'm going to like work through my weaknesses, but also like, what was it that drew you to a book specifically? You know, did you have a story that you wanted to tell? Was there something where you were kind of excited to lean into a particular um, character? What was that? When I was really little, like probably six or seven or something, I started writing in the only way that a small child can, which is very poorly, but you think that it's great. And so I would write poetry and stuff like that. And then I started writing short stories. And all my life, like from the my earliest memories, I wanted to be a writer. And that was always my goal. And that's why in college, I studied English literature to try to just get as much of that content in as I can. And I sort of lost that when I started photography. And I guess about five years ago, I started to tell my husband, I was like, I've got this idea for a book. And I would tell him this idea. And then like a few months later, I would tell him the same thing. But like, I didn't remember that I already told him this idea. I just thought I was constantly having this fresh idea. And so finally, he was like, Brooke, you have had the same idea like six times. You need to just write this book. And when I finally wrote down the idea, I realized that it was basically all of my images smashed into a story that I could put into novel form, which goes back to my filmmaking, which my images mimicked my films before when I was doing that. And so I feel like I've always, I have this singular story to tell that's just manifesting in all these different ways. That is so interesting. And, and maybe that even comes back to this idea of your work being so genuinely and authentically you. It sounds like it's all stemming from the same place, even when you maybe didn't even realize it. That's wild. Yeah. And yeah, it's really interesting to start to break down what is that core idea and why do I keep coming back to it? And and of course, there are all these elements of surrealism or magic, depending on if it's writing or, or photography. But but at the end of the day, what I really love is focusing on people who are suffering or sacrificing, but finding beauty in that. And and that's what everything that I do is about. I can totally see that, but I wouldn't have been able to put those words to it. And it took me a long time too, to finally figure that out. Yeah. Cause you're just drawn to it probably naturally for some reason. Yeah, and very. then you maybe figure out, cause, cause I had the same thing with the podcast where I was like, why am I drawn to these certain people? And like what unites all these people? And then, you know, looking back after the first year being like, oh, there's something that kind of draws all these people together. Even though some people are artists, some people are, uh, you know, working in uh, humanitarian spaces. You know, we've got this full spectrum of people, but, you know, there's some uniting characteristics that I could not have defined at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. One thing that I notice when I look at your images that, again, is kind of funny because this isn't normally the kind of stuff I'm drawn to just by personality, but uh, it's it. there's a lot of darkness in your images. And I love it. Like, I'm so drawn to it. Tell me about that intentional choice to to kind of include a, a lot of darkness, both both aesthetically but thematically. Well, you know, this started a long time ago. Like when I was in high school, I remember reading a short story out loud to my class about this 
girl who um, had these little people in her head telling her what to do, but then they eventually like fled her body and it turned out that she was menstruating for the first time. Super <laughs> weird. I know we're like going weird. But How old were you? I was, I guess like 15 or 16 maybe. And, wow, that's amazing. And, and it was just like, I did not totally appreciate how weird that was to read that out loud to a class at the time. And then, of course, I learned very quickly in the moment how weird it was. And I sort of took that sensibility with me um, into my films where um, like, I would, I often would film people who looked like they were drowning or hanging or just like really like things that I probably shouldn't have been touching, but was really drawn to it for some reason. And then when I started photography, I was taking pictures of myself like stuffed in a freezer or in an oven or in a cupboard or like laying dead in a trash can. And, and I didn't, I did not take the time to ask myself why I was doing that. It was just what I wanted to do. And it was only after doing it that I started to realize that this is a very polarizing thing and that maybe I need to figure out why I'm doing it so that there's intention behind it. I don't know if this is a weird thing to ask, but do you feel like you were doing okay at the time? Like emotionally, mentally, like was there some like underlying darkness in your own life as well? Well, see, that's the kicker is that like I had a really happy life. I was always happy. I don't know. Everything was going great and and still largely is. And I've never been one to pull from my personal life into my art, at least not directly, um, not in any way that's like this represents my you know, grandmother or like anything like that. So I, I've always been unusually happy and joyous as a person. And anyone who's ever met me and looked at my work is always like, well, I don't understand this. Like, this doesn't make any sense. And so I think that people often assume that I must be going through something like that they're not seeing. And the truth is that, yes, that has happened in different periods in my life, but I don't believe that that's what informs my work. And so you start kind of analyzing and saying, okay, maybe I need some thought process and intention behind this work. As you kind of start diving into that, what do you what do you find or what do you create? Well, the very first thing that I came up with was that I I was really drawn to death. Like very literally, I just I don't know why exactly, but I found the visual of that to be gorgeous. And I think that some of that came from looking at paintings of, you know, from like classic paintings where people would be laying dead in the, in the, in the paintings. And I thought that was so beautiful visually, but then at the same time, thematically, I, I just love the idea of bringing ourselves closer to death or or being comfortable with death so that we can live our lives more fully. And that's really where this all stems from. I think if there's one thing I've learned from from traveling, especially as a humanitarian photographer, where I'll go places where death is um, a little bit more prominent in a community because of, you know, whether it's HIV and AIDS or a natural disaster or something, it's just, it's a little bit more a part of the culture and therefore it's more seen. But uh, a criticism I've heard is that in the United States and even just a lot of Western culture, we kind of pretend that death isn't a thing. You know, we, we've got all of these, these health things in our lives to kind of, you know, keep us up and going. And then when people die, you know, you immediately have a closed casket uh, funeral and you bury them and, and you're just done with it. And, I know you've gotten to travel a little bit. Do you feel like you've experienced something similar, you know, that, that maybe there's a, a difference in, in people's perception 
of death across, uh, you know, between the United States and other places. Yes. And you're totally speaking my language right now because for the last year, I've been working on a series that deals directly with death and grief and how we um, look at our dead versus how other cultures look at our dead. So I've been, I'm full of research right now on this. And I love it. Um, and one of my, my main inspirations for this was um, I go to India every year. And one time I went on this very odd motorcycle tour that, it was supposed to be fun, but it was really more like a death tour. It was like we just <laughs> we went to like we went to the Mother Teresa house and then we went to a funeral and then we went to Garbage Mountain, which is just like horrific. And um, and so we went to all these strange places. And so one of the places we went to um, was a cremation. And it was really odd because I'm like, wait, okay, so I'm on the back of this motorcycle and we're having a good time. And then all of a sudden, we're supposed to watch somebody burn with their family. But we were like paying to be on a tour. So I could not understand why this was happening. And we got there and the family was just like, welcome, welcome, you know, and so lovely. And we, so we sat in some chairs and just sort of watched as they prepared the body. And then we left and it was really odd. And I'm still conflicted about it, but that was really eye opening to me as far as how other people perceive death. And then in the same vein in India, um, when somebody dies, they'll pick them up and put them in this um, sort of like glass car and then just drive the body through the streets in this glass car so everyone can see in. And it's so interesting how that veil is just totally pulled away. And and it's not something that we should be ashamed of or that's grotesque. It's just natural. And that inspires me more than anything. So I've been on this kick this whole last year of how can I come closer to death, to be more okay with death, to deal with my grief, to prepare myself and create that visually so that other people can in some way symbolically understand what that feels like. Wow. Okay. First of all, you're such a true artist because <laughs> I'm like not even like thinking on this level with, with anything that I create. I uh, highly but, doubt that. <laughs> I mean, I, I just don't know. If, I mean, I don't know. I just don't know if I am. But what I love is that this work is probably important for me because I like definitely naturally have this avoidance of pain and death. And as I've been c- trying to like do my work emotionally and mentally, I'm very much intentional about leaning into those things. And that's, you know, ultimately what the good newspaper is coming out of is coming out of a place of saying, okay, there's heartbreak and injustice in the world. And it is so much easier to turn a blind eye to it and pretend it doesn't happen because I just so happen as a white straight man living in the United States, I have enough privilege that I can 100% just pretend like nothing's happening. But I force myself with my work to lean in and say, okay, let's dive into this, but let's not stay there. Let's work to kind of redeem this, to create a solution to this problem, to actually be a part of this overall cycle. Then, you know, I think we're coming from the same place because I'm terrified of death. Like I, the other side to me that we haven't talked about is that I'm completely afraid of everything, everything. I'm afraid of the dark. I'm afraid of my shadow. I'm afraid to go to sleep at night. I'm afraid of everything. So that's why I started working on this series is because I want to get as close as I can to the things that I'm afraid of so that I won't be afraid of them anymore. And that's sort of, I, I started to do that this year. I did a photo shoot that I knew 
know is very controversial where um, a friend of mine uh, was pregnant and um, I did a photo shoot with her very near the end of her pregnancy and a couple years before her father had died. So what we did was we brought his ashes to the photo shoot and for the image that I shot, she wiped her father's ashes over her eyes while revealing her pregnancy. And it was this really beautiful moment. And I remember being so afraid to touch those remains and to be near them and 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 just the the fear that we get of being close to death in any form is is really incredible and and that's why I'm drawn to it though because I I don't want to be afraid anymore maybe this is a nice time to mention the fact that one time I modeled topless for you <laughs> uh, for one of your photos I just love that you said topless <laughs> it was a really deep representation of uh, actually I'm sure that it had a lot more uh, depth and meaning for you for me I was like yeah a topless photo shoot with one of my favorite photographers in the rain <laughs> This sounds amazing. (laughs) (laughs) That was a great photo shoot because, so first of all, to set the scene, it's like we're in the middle of a hurricane and there are puddles everywhere. And I was like, can you just press yourself against this pane of glass while I splash puddle water on you? (laughs) And and also, can you scream? (laughs) Like it was, it was just. It was something else. And then, of course, we had an audience of like 80 people watching. Who were all photographing it as well. Oh, it was a good time. If I ever run for elected office, that photo is definitely going to come out. And it's not going to be like a scandal. People are just going to be like, what the heck? (laughs) What are you doing? I know. I'll start to remove all model credit now so that maybe the trail will be clean. The photo was a great photo. You did an amazing (laughs) job with it. And I love that I was just like, okay, enough talking about death. Let's talk about something funny. (laughs) You mentioned India before. Um, Tell me about when you first started going to India, because this is something that I love and admire about you is, is the work that you're doing in India. But before we get to that, just... Tell me about your first experience in India. How did you even end up there? I was hosting a workshop um, in California. And uh, one of the attendees was friends with somebody who does work in India and told her about what I was doing just photographically. And she looked at my website and saw a lot of story in it. And so she reached out to me and she said, um, you know, I do this work in India. Basically, she was doing um, creative workshops for survivors of human trafficking. And she said to me, um, I don't know if this is really weird, but would you want to come to India and just teach a a, a workshop on what you do about storytelling um, to a group of girls there? So I agreed and went over. And that first trip was this just whirlwind of I've never been in a culture like this. There were sights and sounds and smells that I had never fathomed before. And it ended up being such a life-changing trip because I was able to, for the first time, truly teach what I do and see how that could potentially change somebody's life. And I'm not trying to say that what I do is that significant personally, but just the act of giving someone the tool of storytelling is, in my opinion, what will change the world. That's so beautiful. And I think even, I mean, and maybe this is true for everybody, but especially survivors of human trafficking, to be able to tell their story and especially, you know, with you teaching them, you're so great with symbolism in your photography for them to be able to create work out of that and create beauty from these ashes. Like that's, 
that's such a powerful, beautiful tool for them to have. Yeah, it was great. And that first workshop, um, I showed some of my images and we had like long discussions. I would pop one up on the screen and then I would say, what do you think this means? And at, at the beginning, they were really timid, like they didn't want to say anything. And then by the end, right when an image would pop up, they would all just start yelling what they thought it meant. And and it was fascinating because I went into it like, okay, so I'm just a white girl taking pictures of myself. Like, how is anyone going to relate to this? And it turned out that, as you mentioned, symbolically, they were able to understand every single picture that I threw up there and almost instantly too, perhaps even more so than most other cultures that I've experienced. And I think that's partially because that their culture was so much about symbolism and story and myth. And and there was so much of that ingrained in them that they could understand it immediately. But then I also started to see how it was clicking for them. Like, oh, I don't know this girl, but I understand her in some way because of the symbolism. So that led to the second half of the workshop, which was they created their own self-portraits and they were able to find their own costumes and props and things like that. And I'll never forget some of these images that came out of it. Some of them were purely symbolic. Like one girl just could not connect to her story uh, in too raw or emotional of a way because it was too hard for her. So she told the story of a penguin who got separated from her family and was lost. And and you could just see how, you know, she could not use the words, I got separated from my family. So instead it was a penguin because that's her imagination. And then another girl was very literal about it. And she said, you know what? I've been abused my whole life. I got sold from my family. And this image in which she wrapped herself in black fabric with handprints all over um, represented all the men who have tried to pull her down. So it was just so interesting the ways in which this symbolic representation manifested itself. And even maybe this is just too practical of a question, but what did their photography skills kind of look like as as people who maybe haven't had as much access? Like when I went to high school, I was given like a DSLR to use for years. It's just like a part of my school. I imagine, especially if you're coming from a place of um, experiencing uh, being trafficked for years, you don't have years and years of, you know, creative experience what was that kind of like technical level and, and skill set for them? Well, it was very low. I mean, they had never used a camera except for their phones before. So we spent some time, you know, just going over basics. But I quickly realized that, well, let me go back a step. So in in my personal life, in my career, I would often hand my camera to somebody else and just sort of set the settings and then say, okay, take this picture of me and still totally consider that my self-portrait because I did, I made all the choices. So after teaching some very basics, I let them know that if they don't remember how to change the aperture, that's fine. All they have to do is have a vision. They have to tell me how dark they want it, how wide they want the camera, what they want to see in the frame, what angle. And if they can do that verbally, then in my opinion, that's their self-portrait. So that's sort of how we, we approached it. That's really cool. And and I think that's maybe the scariest thing for non-photographers starting to, you know, start shooting things on a camera that has settings uh, is all of those like logistical things of like, oh, what, like, how does ISO work? How do I change the aperture? But if you think about it just in terms of, yeah, I just have to make sure that I'm accomplishing my end goal, that I have a vision of mine and that I, I work towards achieving that, then, you know, that's ultimately what creation is. Yeah. I mean, I'm always frustrated with 
technique and and having technique come to the forefront of what we do as artists because it's it's so little of our craft is about that in the end or at least any art that I love that's endured over time is just so little about that that it's so nice to get rid of it and just say you know what this isn't about how you click the camera or the settings that you choose it's about your vision and how authentically and truly you can put that across to somebody else okay so you visit India, you have this first experience where you're connecting with these women um, and you feel great because you've passed along this tool that then they can totally own. And it doesn't really rely on you. It's it's ultimately them. Uh, and you just kind of opened, you helped open a door for them. What happens next? You know, when do you decide, okay, I'm going to keep on going back to India? Well, so I actually, after that first workshop, I felt really mixed emotions. Like, did this actually do any good? And I think that most people who have tried to do any sort of humanitarian work, you come away with that feeling of like, am I actually making a difference? And yeah. what is this doing? And is it worth the time and energy and money that that people put into this? And it wasn't until I went back the next year and I saw that same group of people and they were so excited to see me and so excited to grab my camera. And one of them had become the head of their um, uh, media department because they started working for a nonprofit. And that was when I thought, you know what? They might not become self-portrait artists, but they learned a way to tell their story where they didn't have to re-traumatize themselves by retelling you know, with words their story. And that's worth something. And they can take these skills and do other things with them. And that's when I just start, decided to keep coming back year after year. So now I've been to India, I think, seven or eight times now. And I've gone other places to Thailand and um, Greece to work with refugees. And I decided to open a photo school with this in mind, a few things in mind, one being that they can tell their story however they want, another being that they can learn vocational skills to be able to get jobs elsewhere, whether it's as a photographer or not. Um, and then a third reason being that we try to include um, heads of uh, NGOs, nonprofit organizations abroad, so that they can have a better media department so that they can hopefully create better images, better better packages, and then hopefully raise more money for the people that they're serving. Uh, that makes me so happy because, and it sounds like this is some of the conflict you've had, but like in my travels as a humanitarian photographer working with nonprofits around the world, uh, my biggest conflict, my internal conflict is just like, am I having some degree of like a white savior complex? Am I showing up and being like, oh, I am here to help and shoot photos and, and make a difference and then I will leave. My ultimate dream is to essentially like be out of business in this regard. And so I love when I get to travel and I get to meet other photographers and people working in media like in Africa, in East Asia. And I get to, you know, spend some time with them or even, you know, pass along gear or anything like that, uh, knowing that, hey, maybe I can just refer them for the next gig I get out there. You know, like, and I love that theoretically, you know, some of these women going through this program can 100% take over the work that folks like you and me might end up doing. And, and maybe they can continue to teach classes or whatever that is. It's, uh, you're kind of creating systemic change. 
Yeah. And it, it, with our program in Thailand, um, one of our former students is actually teaching the course Whoa. now. And it's so great to be able to give that back, you know, to pay him a monthly salary and and to just, just sort of set an example for future students who come through. Like, you know, this person was once in your chair and then he, you know, he was really good and he knew what he was doing and he tried really hard and now he's teaching. And so it's, it's really good to put people in that position of power, not just for themselves, yeah. but to prove to other people that it's possible. Oh, that's such a good point. This may be another like logistical question, but like how, what's the kind of the funding process for making this happen? How do you uh, bring this to life? You know, I wish that I had a good answer for that. And I think that part of my problem is that I don't want to ask for anything from anybody. And I have a really hard time funding my charity projects. I, and I do it um, just through fundraisers. So I'll do like um, uh, a creative challenge where I'll make a workbook and some videos and then make it a pay what you can price. And then that way I'll do like 50% of the proceeds to charity. So that's how I've been funding it. There was a convention held in honor of uh, the light space, which is the school that uh, that I uh, co-founded, and and so various projects have been held. But right now, I'm sort of in this phase of like, okay, we've got enough money to keep going for another couple of years, but but I'm so afraid of asking for things, and and I'm not sure why. I'm the same way. I hear you. it's a weird thing, and but I'm glad that you're making this happen, and I I hope that you continue to ask for things. It's interesting thinking about your work in the way that you are bringing your heart to work in a few different ways. Like you do it both through the imagery of your photos, you know, just the way that you were diving into deeper topics that help people process things and yourself process things and kind of go a level deeper and, and ultimately live a little bit more of an enlightened life because of it. But then you also have this thing that's, you know, out of your work, but separate from your work, you know, where you're, you know, in India or you're in Thailand I think as an artist or as anybody who has a, a certain skill set, it's so beautiful and powerful to get to use your art to make a difference in another way. But ultimately, you could have just done one of those things. You know, like if you, you could have just picked one of those things and it would have been totally fine. Tell me about, you know, why you integrated into so much of the work you do. And even, you know, the, the, the blog where you're kind of educating and empowering other people and these conventions where you're, you know, bringing in inspiring, wonderful people to have conversations that matter. Like you fully integrated this into all of your work. Tell me about where that comes from in you. There's this quote that I can never remember exactly, but basically it insinuates that we should live and die a thousand times in this life. And I love that idea that that we should be one version of ourselves and then let that person go and then adopt another person and let that person go and just continuously sort of be like a phoenix rising and then falling to ashes and being okay with that. And that's where all of my passions come from is this idea that, okay, so I studied filmmaking, but I'm not going to do that anymore. And I'm not going to look back. I'm just going to become a photographer. Okay, well, now I want to be a writer. And also I want to inspire people. So I'm going to host a convention. And I, I think that we tend to limit ourselves to one thing because that's what we're taught to do when we're growing up. When you grow up, you're an adult and you have this one thing that you're going to pursue and you're going to climb that ladder. And I find that the top of the ladder is a very lonely place to be and it's very boring. And and what, what do you do from there? And I'm so interested in in getting to a place where I feel successful and then instead of clinging on to that for dear life, letting go of that for dear life and moving on and, and finding something else to embody and accomplish. 
do you feel like you'd had that seed planted in a way when you were when you were young? Do you feel like there was anything uh, you know, before you had even gotten to college and started studying creative things that, uh, that kind of lit that path for you? Sort of. And I don't know if any one particular thing happened, but I've always been extremely confident, like even when I shouldn't be. And I know I'm very grateful for this trait because I recognize that a lot of people struggle with confidence and that's not an easy thing for people to um, cultivate, but I've always had an overabundance of confidence. And this has led me to being entirely unafraid of pursuing new things, whether it's you know something social where, yes, I'm afraid of social things, but also I'm very confident that I can do it. So I, I've always had this idea that I can change the world. I can make a difference. I can help people. I can create art. And a lot of people co- go into their adult life with just the opposite. Oh, I can't make a difference. I can't create this art. And that mindset, I have no idea where it comes from, has been the biggest catalyst in moving me forward. Maybe that leads into me wanting to just, you know, wrap up this conversation with a with a question that, you know, is, is something that maybe I need, you know, for folks who want to just continue to bring their heart into the work that they do for folks who want to uh, find more ways to kind of connect on a deeper level with whatever they're doing, whether it's creative or not, what kind of advice would you offer? What kind of, you know, practical, tangible action steps would you give them? The first one, and this is what I learned when I started photography, is to not censor yourself in any way from what you want to create. If you have just this a glimmer of a weird idea that you want to pursue, it's almost definitely worth it. Because when I started photography, I was taking these creepy pictures and they were not well received from a lot of people. I got a lot of emails, you know, saying this is terrible, you can't put this on the internet, what if my child sees this? Stuff like that. And I started to realize that there is this large group of people who completely disapproves of what I'm doing. But at the same time, there was another group of people who resonated so much with what I was doing because they felt like someone had finally created how they feel. And that is what I have found to be true of art, that when an artist creates something that's so completely them, it will also be completely another person. And there are people out there who need that gift of what you have to give when you give your your pure, unadulterated vision to your craft. So I think the first step is to do that, to to give whatever weird thing is happening in your mind, put that out there in tangible form and let other people have it. And that letting other people have it is the second part to that, which is that I never create purely for myself. I'm just not interested in that as an artist. Yes, it's fun and I love it and I will never stop. But the second half of why I create is not just because I have a vision, but because somebody could benefit from that vision. So with every single thing that I do, whether it's as simple as a blurb on social media or an image or a film, I'm always asking myself, is this purely my vision and how will somebody benefit from that? And it can be as simple as somebody will benefit because you are being you. And somebody needs the gift of who you are. And sometimes the answer is a lot bigger than that. So I would say totally be yourself and trust that somebody needs you to be yourself. Man, what an eye-opening conversation. I, I absolutely love Brooke. 
I'm so interested in this idea that Brooke is so passionate about this idea of living and dying a thousand deaths in a lifetime. I think this idea is powerful for flipping the script on how we think about the trajectory of our lives and how all of that should play out. And instead of clinging to our successes for dear life, maybe we can try to let go of that. Maybe we can move on and find something else to embody and accomplish. We don't have to just stay stagnant. I don't know. It's really interesting. If you haven't already, make sure you follow Brooke online. Check out her Instagram. Her photos are incredible. Wow. Yeah, it's incomparable. It'll leave you speechless. Definitely check it out. And as you heard, Brooke is not great about asking for financial support for her incredible projects, but we are. And so uh, you absolutely have to check out her organization called The Light Space. The Light Space. It's a photography school for formerly trafficked individuals and those vulnerable to human trafficking and gender-based violence. Please consider donating at thelightspace.org. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. If you connected with this episode, if you love artists, you'd also love my conversations with professional photographer Jolly Pinto. She's incredible, has a beautiful story. And filmmakers TJ Martin and Dan Lindsay. They made a fantastic film that uh, I think it just came on Netflix. So check out both of those episodes. You can find both of these and more than 100 other episodes by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast was created by me, Brandon Harvey, is a part of Good, Good, Good. We're a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and ultimately becoming good news. Chad Michael Snavely and the team at CM Studio edit and mix the show, and Chrissy Karen Brock offers production support. You can find lots of hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at Good, Good, Good CO. And we also create a beautiful quarterly newspaper that celebrates the people, ideas, and movements that are shaping the world for the better. And right now, in our online shop, you can get most of our past issues for $5, which is the best deal we've offered yet. So check it out and see what else we do at goodgoodgood at goodgoodgood.co. Man, I say good so much in every podcast. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Take Brooke's advice and be true to who you are. The world needs whatever weird, wonderful thing that is in your mind and in your heart. Sound good?